Well, good morning, church. And I don't know about you, but I always love worship. Um, and, and I really, really love that song, as, as you probably heard there for a second. I could preach off of that song. I won't, because I didn't prep that kind of message. Um, but I could. And the problem is, if I preached off of that song, we'd be here for at least two hours, um, easily. So uh, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, like, you need me to pre- or talk for 30 minutes? Well, give me a day. One minute, ooh, that's going to take a week. But four hours, I'm ready now. Um, so, but I, I want to be cognizant of your time and, and recognize, well, it's not all about me and all about my speaking. Uh, but anyways, welcome to week one of a new short series that we're going to be doing called It's Not About You. It's not about you. Turn to your neighbor right now and say that to them. It's not about you. Come on, if you took offense to that, you're going to hate this entire series. You should probably leave right now. Um, but but the, we're, we're preaching this series, it's not about you, because I think that in our present day, in our present society, that the, the world and the enemy like to teach us all of these little tiny lies about what is truly important. And we, we get told all the time that if we want to get ahead, we need to focus on ourselves, that we need to focus on me. It's all about me. It's about my needs, my urges, my desires, what, what I want. And, and, and I don't think that that is actually a biblical concept. In fact, I think that is completely counter to the Bible because, you know, society likes to tell us that life is about two things. One, it's about being happy. How many of you want to be happy? A few people? Okay. All right. The rest of you want to be miserable. That's fine. Um, Society likes to tell us that life is about being happy and not suffering. That sounds like a pretty good life, right? But I think that God has more for your life than just happiness. I think that God has a plan for you. A plan to prosper you and to give you a hope and a future. He has something in store for your life that is more than just for you to be happy and not to suffer. And so over these next three weeks, we are going to be tackling some of the lies that society likes to tell us that try to convince us that it is all about us. These lies that we believe that it's all about our wants, my wants, my needs, my desires, my urges, and and, and to look at what the Bible actually says about our role in society. And, and so I want to kick it off this week with, with a word that God has been working out in my heart over the past several years. And I never want to preach something that I'm not actually putting into practice. So, so when I, as I teach this lesson, this is something that God has been working on my heart for years now. And it's a struggle. I'll be honest, it's a struggle. But it's something that I believe is absolutely crucial as we navigate the world and as we reach people with the love of Christ. And it's, it's this word that's been challenging me to be a better person out of Philippians 2. It says, Philippians 2, verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a slave and being found born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, this passage is really this beautiful expression of the story of Jesus, what Jesus did for us, how Jesus came and he died for us, but that's not what I want to focus on this morning. Let's back up to the beginning of that verse, if we throw it back up. I want to focus on this, this part of this verse that I think society likes to teach us is a bit of a, a swear word. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, there's the swear word, regard others as better than yourselves. You know, I think we're in a season right now in the world where the world likes to try and convince us that we need to focus on ourselves. Where everything is just trying to get our attention for the purpose of, usually for the purpose of selling something. It's like, you, you're going to need this in order to be happy. You're going to want that in order to be happy. You, you should have, like, thousands of followers on Instagram, and then you'll be happy. And I felt God tell me that too many Christians are living lives where they live trapped thinking only about themselves. And so this morning, I want to preach to you on the idea that we see out of Philippians 2 of humility and the trap of society that I'm calling the ego trap. The ego trap. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray, Lord, bless our time together, God. And open our eyes to see what you're doing in our midst and our ears to hear what you have for us this morning, Lord. Let me be your mouthpiece, God, that none of us will leave this room the same, but that we will leave transformed and equipped to, to live the lives you've called us to, God. Pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. The ego trap. You know, it's been my privilege over um, many years now, actually, to, as a pastor, it's been my privilege to, to have the opportunity to sit down with people and, and really to get to know them a little bit, to hear their life story, to hear what God is doing in their life, what, to pray over them when they're struggling, and, and really to have open, honest conversations about life, about faith, about personal growth, and, and just to get to know people. And, and I really love this part of my job because, you know, the church is not about a big Sunday service. Church is really about two things. One, it's glorifying God. We gather to worship God. But two, it's about the community of people. And, like, we could throw a church service, but if none of you were here, there'd be no point. Um, and, and so I really love being able to interact with people and, and hear what God is doing in their life because I find it so fascinating the different ways that God communicates with us. And, and, but one of my favorite types of interactions I have is when, when a couple approaches me and they ask me to perform their wedding ceremony. And I really, really enjoy that because... It's just really cool to be able to sit down with a, with a couple, young or old, or, or wherever they are in their life, and sit down with them and to hear their story. So I always find it fascinating hearing, like, how did you guys meet? What was your first impression? Did you like him? Did you like her at first? Or did you think that you guys were jerks? 
my wife thought I was a jerk at first, and I just find it fascinating. Like, and if they thought you were a jerk, how did you flip it? How did you work that out? Like, I, I just find it interesting, like, hearing the story. What, what makes your relationship work? What makes you love one another? What are you most excited about in, in this marriage? And, and, and really, as well, I love the opportunity to be able to speak into a relationship, to be able to give a few words of wisdom to, to help the couple as they start this new phase of their life. And, and I'll be honest, I'm no, not an expert in marriage. Ask my wife. Not an expert by any means. We've been married for about three years now. There's people in the room who've been married probably longer than I've been alive. Um, so if you want marriage advice, go to a couple that's been married a long time because there's things that me and my wife are working on that they have figured out like 25 years ago. Like, but uh, but uh, there's a lot of wisdom out there as well about being successful in relationships, you know, about how to fight properly. Because the reality is you put two people into a room and there will eventually be conflict if you wait long enough. It's, it's just a fact of life. And so learning to fight well so that you don't come out of the fight hating one another, that's, that's really important. There's other advice about like communication and how communication is so key, communicating your desires, your intentions, your different things like that so that you, you can fulfill one another's needs. And, and all of that is extremely valuable. But whenever I perform a wedding ceremony, my go-to piece of advice beyond the conflict resolution stuff, beyond the communication stuff, my go-to piece of advice is put the other person first. Put your partner first. Before your own needs, before your own wants, before your own urges, before your own desires, put them first and do whatever you can to help them succeed. And I say this to literally every couple that I do a wedding for um, because I believe that the ego trap is something that is so prevalent in our relationships that it actually starts to destroy and rip relationships apart. I think that the ego trap is one of those things that will try and get in and will try and convince us that you, oh, it's all about you. It's not about your spouse. It's all about you. And it'll start to rip a relationship apart and separate what God has put together. Because, you know, as often as I've been able to sit down with a couple who's getting married and celebrate a successful relationship, I've also had the unfortunate opportunity to walk alongside people whose relationships have fallen apart. To hear stories from people who've endured divorce and heartache and heartbreak and all these different things. And it's really crazy to me when I talk with these couples and these relationships that fall apart it's crazy to me how often the root of the issue was this idea of it's all about me. Like, did you know that, I did some research when I was working on this message, did you know that the top three reasons for divorce nowadays are falling out of love, conflict, and infidelity? Which really, to sum it up into a neat phrase, it's that the top re- two reasons people get divorced is you um, are rooted in thinking there's something better out there for you, falling out of love, infidelity, and putting your own needs first, not being willing to engage in conflict properly. And in the context uh, of relationship, it's this ego trap where we get so focused on ourselves, on our needs, on our wants, that we think we deserve to be happy. How many of you guys have heard somebody say that before? 
I deserve to be happy. Really? Really? You deserve it. All right. And it's the ego trap. We start to put our needs first, and then in a relationship, we start to expect that, well, my needs are most important, so you should be putting my needs first. And then when your partner ultimately fails, because guess what? They're human. Just saying, I've messed up. I'm sure my wife's messed up. When they ultimately fail to meet what we think we need, we, the relationship starts to splinter. And, and then what's crazy is how many times I've heard somebody say, oh, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my fault. I'm like, really? You cheated on your wife. It wasn't your fault? Interesting. It's like, oh, well, if, if she had just done A, B, C, D, E, it would have been fine. I'm like, okay. I'm like, it's not my fault. And if they just did blank, this would never have happened. But it's, it's the ego trap. It's the trap where we start to believe that we are better or more important than someone else, and thus our needs are more important than theirs. And this doesn't just happen in relationships. I'm just using relationships as the catalyst to explore this topic because, you know, Valentine's Day is tomorrow. Um, it's a time when people really celebrate a lot of relationships. But, but this happens everywhere in, in our lives. How many of you have ever had a manager who, when there's a good idea, they claim it as theirs? And when there's a bad idea, it's your fault. Like, that's the ego trap in a nutshell. Oh, good idea. John had a good idea. That's my idea. I'll receive the praise. But, ooh, it went badly. That's, yeah, that's John's bad. It's like, really? Like, if you've ever seen The Office, this is Michael Scott to a T. It's the ego trap, though. And it happens in, in leadership where one person starts to think, well, I'm the linchpin of this whole team. If I were gone, the team would fall apart. And, and what happens when you start to think that way is you start to believe that other people's skills are less important than yours and their ideas are less important than yours. And then over time, when somebody has a good idea, you're less likely to listen to them. It's the ego trap. Or happens when we're out shopping because we walk into a store and we're like, well, I expect a modicum of respect in the store. I expect the employees to treat me well. And then you go up to the cashier, this poor minimum wage cashier who's been having a hard day and has been yelled at by some people. And, and they don't treat you with the respect that you want. And you walk out of that store frustrated and angry. And you're like, well, one star on Google then. Never going back. And, and the pinnacle of this is what the internet likes to call Karens. And I don't really like that phrase because I know a lot of Karens who are amazing, amazing, amazing people. Um, and I really don't like labeling people. But the whole idea of this, this phrase is, is the idea that there's, there's these there are these people who are so entitled and so selfish that if they are not treated like royalty, they will go out of your way to ruin your life. And I know that's an extreme example, and I don't want you to think, well, that's just something that other people struggle with. I know I struggle with this. Just get me on the phone with customer support. A live chat. I'm like, I just need you to do A. Oh, so you want me to do B and C? No, A. D? No, 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 A. E? No, no, A. A, B, C, D, and E? No, no. And, and, and I find it so annoying dealing with customer service, but really it's just people like you and me. 
who are trying to do their job, they've been instructed on what to do. And, and I find myself in those moments, especially when it's a live chat, that I can get frustrated and I can get a little rude. I take it out on them. And really, the ego trap is, is all of us in different ways acting like a toddler not wanting to share their toys. It's the ego trap. It's the trap of it's all about me, all about my happiness, my needs, my desires. It's the ego trap. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you guys have a phone here? If you have a phone, this is the point in the service. You can pull it out for a second, as if you're not doing that already. (laughs) If you have a phone, pull it out. And all I want you to do is I want you to go into your camera app and then put it into selfie mode. And what I want you to do is hold it in front of your face. Phone out, selfie mode in front of your face. Now look at your phone screen. Really complicated question for you right now. Who do you see? Okay. What are you focused on? Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. Some of you are looking at yourself and you're like, ooh, I hate wearing this mask. Some are like, ooh, I look good today. If you're like me, you're like, ooh, I forgot to shave this morning. Um, But you're looking at you. So follow-up question, how much of your neighbor can you see? None. Or maybe, if you're lucky, just a little tiny bit. If you turn it, kind of, and fill it, but the focus is on you. And the idea of this, you can put your phones away now. The idea of this is what you focus on will become the highlight of your life. What you focus on will become the highlight of your life. So if all you do is focus on yourself, you've started to fall into that ego trap. You start to miss what God is doing all around you and what God wants to do through you in the lives of others. James 4, 1 to 4 describes it this way. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? Cravings literally meaning, in in this context, being the improper desires that you think you need that will make you happy but really are destroying you and the community around you. The cravings are at war within you. You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. Now, this is a very harsh word, and, and in the context, James is writing to a church, and we don't believe that he's literally talking about Christians killing each other. Because I don't think the rest of the letter would have really started how it did. Where he's talking about, like, enduring suffering. Maybe it did. I don't know. Um, but, but likely what he's referring to is, is murder is, is in this context talking about the extravagant hatred with which they are fighting. The destruction, the devastation of their unrestrained hostility. You, you want something and do not have it, so you commit murder, and you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. And in this context, James is writing to this church that essentially what had happened was they were Christians, and at this point, they were considered to be like the bottom of society. You were, if you're a Christian, you were looked down on, you were not considered important, and they were like, well, we have the living God on our side. We should be most important. People should be worshiping us and looking up to us. And from there, the church began to get filled with two kinds of people. One, the rich people who looked down on the poor people and refused to help them and said, well, you, you help yourself. I help myself. Look, I got money. You help yourself. And then the poor people who looked down on the rich and were like, well, you're just godless because you're not sharing your money. And it's this church 
of selfish people who have fallen into the ego trap, who are thinking it's all about me. Poor people grudgingly looking up at the rich and being like, how dare you not share with me? And rich people looking down at the poor and being like, how dare you not work harder? And they have these conflicts and these fights and these disputes and this hatred within their church. Because you see, the reality is the ego trap will almost always produce conflict. And sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's actual physical aggression or fighting. But usually in our society, it's passive aggressiveness. Going away, oh, my coworker got a hot tub. I want a hot tub. They don't deserve a hot tub. Or like, oh, that person treated me wrongly. I'm going to give him a bad review. It's, we think we deserve something. We think we're so important that when someone else gets what we want or we deem someone else to be less important than us, or someone treats us as if we're less important than we think we deserve, it's conflict. And James writes to them, you want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. You, you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in conflicts and disputes. It goes on and he says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend your... Your, your, in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. And he's saying you are fighting because some of you have what others want and you're fighting over this stuff and some of you are even bold enough to ask God for your selfish desires. God's not going to give you your selfish desires. He's not a genie up in heaven. He's not a slot machine where you've inserted enough prayers and eventually you're going to hit the jackpot. He says, adulterers, adulterers, that's a harsh word, adulterers, do you not know that, em- or that um, friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Adulterers, you are cheating on God with the world because of your selfish desires. And it's causing conflict among you Because some of you have what others want and you're fighting over it. You think you deserve more than you have right now. But guess what? In your pursuit for more, your pursuit to be more like society and to fit into society, you've actually lost God. And it's this idea that I think is at least part of the reason that Jesus rails against so many of the religious people in his day. Matthew 6, 1-4, Jesus starts this whole montage of these different practices that the people of the day are, are doing, giving, praying, fasting, and how they're doing them wrong. And he says, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. Piety being your religious stuff. Beware of pretending to be holy. Beware of acting holy before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward. Not a little reward. Not a tinier reward or a smaller reward than you would get otherwise, for then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give alms, alms being how you gave, when you give to the poor, when you bring money to the synagogue at that day, or when you bring money to the church nowadays, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets so that they may be praised by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. So your alms may be done in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
See, the ego trap will tell you that it's all about you, and it'll get you so focused on yourself that even when you do the right things, even when you go to help others, it's not about actually helping them. It's about what can I get out of this? And it, it tricks us in, in unconscious ways, psychologically speaking, um, to, to believe that we are more important. And, and ultimately, um, what, what science has shown us is that the more power somebody gets, the less compassion they show. So the ego trap think, tricks us into thinking you just need more, more power, more power, more power, and then as you get there, you show less compassion and less care for other people. You know, for me, this is one of the things that I noticed a couple years back when, when, I, um, got, uh, when I became the associate pastor here. It was just a slight subconscious shift in my thinking. And over time, I didn't really notice it until one time about a year ago, one of our... Um, our, uh, our youth director, Spencer, he asked me to build slides for him, for youth. And it was a fair request because he was sick. And, you know, when you're sick and there's COVID going on, you stay home. Um, so he was like, hey, can you build slides for me? And I'm like, okay, sure. And, and I remember coming in and, and I working on the slides and I was doing them in a huff because I was like, oh, doesn't Spencer know that I have more important things to do? Like, I'm so busy. Why am I doing this? This is beneath me. Time's too valuable for this. And, and God got a hold of me, and he was like, who do you think you are? That you get a promotion and you think you're something special? It's not about you. See, the ego trap is dangerous because it convinces us that everything is about us, which in turn causes division and conflict because People have something that we want or don't treat us the way we think we deserve or, or something along those lines. It causes division and conflict. It corrupts our behavior, making us, even when we do the right things, we do them in selfish ways so that we might get something in return. I'm going to give, but I'm going to let everyone know how much I give so that they will praise me. And three, it craters our compassion. It makes us unwilling to help others if it means we don't get anything in return. It gets us so focused on ourselves that we miss everything going on around us. Which is why I think Paul, in the middle of his appeal to the Philippian church for unity, it's like, let's be united in Christ. In the middle of this appeal to unity in the church, he writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. See, that's a shift. It's a shift in focus. It's a shift in behavior. Because I don't know about you, but selfish behavior comes to me easily. It's really easy to be selfish. But what's really hard is to actually regard others as better than myself and to try to help them instead of myself. And he says, in this moment, he says, in humility regard others, that's key, as better than yourself. And, and really, this is not this idea of believing you're worthless. It's not telling you, oh, you are so low that everyone else is more important than you. He's saying, oh, no, no. In every situation, in every interaction, in every, with every person that you meet, treat them with the same respect that you would treat someone who you think is better than yourself. You meet Jesus on the street? Well, treat him with respect as someone better than yourself. Duh. When you're hanging out with your friends and family, well, treat them with respect as someone better than yourself. When walking down the street and there's a homeless guy sleeping on the corner, well, treat him with better respect, with respect to someone better than yourself. The politician, 
political leader of the party you don't like? Treat them with respect as someone better than yourself. Let me be clear, this doesn't mean you have to like them. This doesn't mean that you have to agree with their decisions. This doesn't mean that you can't protest their decisions. It just means that you're not going to be going on Facebook and being like, F this leader and F that leader because of a decision. Treat them with respect as someone more important than yourself. Or to put it another way, don't think that you're so great that you can put others down. Don't think that your rights are more important than anyone else's rights. Don't think that your job or your financial situation or the fact that you might own, own your house think you are better than the person working minimum wage at McDonald's or the person sleeping on the street corner. My grandmother always told me, your rights end where the next person's begin. And really, I think a part of that is that that is a, a key to humility, that we recognize what we have the right to do, but we also recognize when what we're doing hurts others. So you can do the right thing, but still hurt people. And then Paul goes on and he says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. I don't know about you, but can you imagine a world where that's actually the case? Where you don't have time to deal with your own problems because you're so busy dealing with other people's problems, but that's okay because they're dealing with yours? Like, that's insane. That would be amazing. And I think that's what relationships are supposed to be like, where I am so busy working on my wife, helping my wife, looking after her needs, that I don't have time to deal with mine, but that's okay because she's looking after mine. And and it's like this. Grab your phones again. Grab your phones again. Go back into selfie mode and hold your phone up in front of your face here. See, in this mode, all you can see is yourself. Your focus is on yourself. But the shift in worldview that I think Paul is calling us to is to flip the camera around. You flip your camera around. Now look around you. What do you see? Do you see yourself or do you see others? See your needs or their needs? It's this lifestyle where we're called to be focused on others. What did they need? How can I help them? And you'll notice you, when your camera's flipped that way, you don't see yourself. But that's okay because they do. Because they'll be looking after you. And then Paul, he launches into this beautiful picture of, of Christ. He says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you see in this moment, Paul's saying, hey, all this stuff that I've been telling you, in humility, regard others as better than yourselves, look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Yeah, guess what? I'm not just telling you because I think it's important. I'm telling you because this is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus lived. This is what Jesus did for you. And we're called to be like him. See, Jesus' story is the example by which we are supposed to live. 
or Jesus was God and he was up in heaven and he wasn't like, oh, worship is great. This is amazing. I'm so happy. Ah, who cares about the world? But he was up in heaven and he saw us in our need. He saw us in our problems. He saw us in our sin and he said, that's not okay. I want to come and I want to help them. And so he came to earth, but he wasn't content just teaching us how to live. He wanted to demonstrate it. And so he went and he died on the cross in order to save us from our sin because the penalty of sin is death. So he took our sin upon himself and he died so that we wouldn't have to die for our sin. And in doing so, he put our needs first. He was God, yet he considered that our needs were more important than his. He was God, yet, yet he, he did not let that distract him from, what, from helping us with our struggles. And what's completely mind-boggling and counterintuitive to what our society tells us because our, our society likes to tell us that if you don't look after your own needs, no one else will. If you don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you're never going to achieve what you want to achieve. You need to focus on yourself to get ahead, and then you'll get all this stuff and all the rewards. But, but the example we see from Jesus is completely counterintuitive from that. What he gets in return for his sacrifice, verse 9, says, Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means he has authority over everything in heaven, everything on earth, and everything under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus didn't seek his own fame. He sought to help us. Jesus didn't look to his own interests. He looked to ours. And in return, he got something far greater than we could ever imagine. This is why I think in, in Matthew 23, Jesus says this phrase. He says, the greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Because you see, the ego trap will tell you that you need more power, more fame, more money, more stuff, that you need to achieve things and look after your own interests and make sure that nobody ever hears a story about that can make you look less, because it's all about you and their perception of you. But the kingdom tells us that we should be putting others first. And that in the midst of putting others first, you will actually get something greater than you would have ever achieved here on earth. Ego trap tells us if you focus on yourself, you'll be happier. But really, what it causes is division and conflict. It corrupts our behavior so that we only do stuff if it will benefit us. And it craters our compassion blocks our ability to see others and to help others in their need. But the kingdom of God tells us if you focus on others, you'll actually achieve something that you could never achieved on your own. You actually find happiness. You actually find joy. And psychologically speaking, this is actually like scientifically backed up. I've been reading through this book on, on leadership um, it's called The Mind of a Leader, and it, it's not a Christian book, but it's about 
like it's for business and leading teams and people and organizations. And, and I found it fascinating because it's focused on this idea of being mindful, of being selfless, and of being compassionate. And partway through the book, it, it, it says this phrase, which I think is fascinating. It says, compassion is wise egoism, which means compassion is a wise way to look after yourself. Because when we are kind to others, we are happier. Compassion is one of the most important contributors of our own well-being. See, the world will try to tell us that we need to focus on ourselves to get ahead. But what the Bible tells us and what science tells us is that that's not true. If we focus on others, that's when we will achieve happiness. Focus on others, that's when we'll receive a reward. And really what this looks like, what this means, is it's really simple. It means making the daily decision every time you meet somebody, every person you interact with, that you treat them as someone who's more important than yourself. Even if you don't like them. We'll talk about that more next week, though. It means helping others, looking after their needs, which doesn't mean that you give up your entire life and you quit your job and then all you do is help people. No, no, it just means help them as you can. Support them as you can. If they have a need, do what you can to help them and support them. And the easiest way to do that is what's called a five-minute favor. I'll do anything for anybody if it's going to take me five minutes. I usually actually make it a 15-minute favor. I'll do anything for anybody if it'll take me 15 minutes. And most importantly, living a selfless life, living out of this calling that we have to humility regard others as better than ourselves, it means giving up what is rightfully belongs to you if it means it would benefit someone else. Giving of your time, giving of your finances, giving of yourself if it means it would help someone else. And the result is a reward that we wouldn't get on earth. People don't tend to praise you if you give secretly. People don't tend to praise you if they don't know what you're doing, but something far greater value available for you. You know, I believe this is what God is calling us to as a church. Not to be so self-possessed and focused on our own needs that we miss everything else around us and we just live our lives in selfie mode looking at ourselves. But that we focus on the needs of others. That we recognize that it's not all about me. It's about them. It's about them. It's about them. So as we close, if I can get everyone to stand right now, I just want to pray over us. I don't have a really deep theological thing to say to you to, to close or anything like that because I believe that God is powerful enough to work in each one, every one of our hearts and to help us in this. So just as we close, if I can get everyone to just put out their hands in this posture of receiving. Father God, I pray, Lord, that we won't let our lives be governed by ourselves. 
that we won't let our lives be governed by what society tells us we need, but that we will live selflessly, looking out for others, regarding others as more important than ourselves, looking out for the needs of the, the people around us and supporting them however we can and treating them with the respect and honor that each and every one of them deserves as a child of the King. Father, as we go out into our lives and into our weeks, Lord, I pray that you will help us. Help me, God. That I won't let frustration or anger or annoyance get in the way of treating people the way you want me to. But Lord, that we will be people who are visibly changed and different than the world because of your love. I pray this in your holy name. Amen.